And since 2011, there hasn't been a single death sentence in Virginia. And Virginia in the modern era is second only to Texas in executions. It's a top death sentencing state. The law hadn't changed, but, but the death penalty has, on the ground, largely disappeared in Virginia. Welcome to Voir Dire, conversations from the Criminal Justice Policy Program at Harvard Law School. I'm Skylar Dom, and today I'm sitting down with Brandon Garrett, professor at UVA Law School and author of End of Its Rope, How Killing the Death Penalty Can Revive Criminal Justice. The death penalty has declined precipitously since the 1990s, and I want you to take a moment now and try to think of three reasons why that might be. Then, Professor Garrett and I will discuss his new book, which takes a comprehensive look and does some statistical analyses to determine what is killing the death penalty? And we'll see if your hypothesis was right. So I thought we could sort of start in medias race, basically, and uh, just happened to read about Oklahoma and their attempts now to introduce nitrogen gas into their execution protocol. And I thought you could just start by laying out the state of executions, the actual act of execution, um, yeah, as so, it stands now. Yeah, so executions have declined over the past 20 years, uh, both executions and death sentences reached their height in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. Executions have plummeted even faster than death sentences. Uh, one thing I think that people don't always realize about the death penalty is that um, people who are sentenced to death don't have a very good chance of ever being executed. Yeah. And in the uh, 1970s and 80s, it was well-documented in a series of studies that about two-thirds of those people got their cases re reversed for serious errors. Those are the broken system studies mm -hmm. that Jim Liebman, Jeff Fagan, Valerie West, and some co-authors worked on. I worked on them a little bit as a law student. It was a real treat for me. It was kind of my introduction into studying the death penalty systematically. Uh, but even on top of all the people, like two-thirds reversal rate, that's huge. Even on top of that, many people die of natural causes or of suicide while on death row and others get clemency. Um, and so it's a, a small number, you know, one in eight, one in nine that are executed. The number that get executed has gone down even more because over the last five, ten years, we've had crisis after crisis in states with botched executions, inability to access lethal injection drugs. And so you have many death penalty states where there is no authorized way to execute people or where governors have moratoria in place because they're trying to figure out what to do. If you could describe the rate of execution and the rate of death penalty sentencing over the last, let's say, four decades, what does it look like? Yeah, so um, both death sentences and executions had virtually disappeared by the end of the 1960s. And at that point, the Supreme Court decided in the early 1970s, Furman versus Georgia, and struck down all of the death penalty statutes that were in place in the country, said that they were unconstitutional. Um, and you know, the private notes of the justices suggested that they thought this is the last we're ever going to hear about the American death penalty again. You know, it was kind of fading fast, and we dealt it the final blow. And then they were wrong. Uh, there was a huge crime wave and homicide wave in the country. President Nixon had just run on tough on crime, and there was tough on crime politics. The sort of whole modern era of mass incarceration was about to begin, and the death penalty was a part of that. States reacted by immediately passing new death penalty statutes and sentencing more people to death than they had in, in decades. 
And so all of a sudden you had hundreds and hundreds of death sentences a year. Death sentences shoot up. Uh, it takes a little while for executions to catch up. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first executions start in the late 1970s, by which time the Supreme Court has said that lots of those statutes that the states rushed to pass, um, a lot of them are okay. You can have the death penalty as long as you, you know, give the jury some more rules for how to do it. We've changed our mind. We think the death penalty can work. Uh, we are sort of chastened by this backlash that the popular support for the death penalty is apparently much greater than we ever thought. And so in the 1980s, you have death sentencing continue to rise and rise. In the 1990s, you have death sentencing rising. And over time, executions start to rise as well as more and more cases become exhaust their appeals and habeas and, and start to get ready for an execution. Around the same time, towards the end of the 1990s, the, the bottom starts to drop from death sentencing, and death sentencing gradually starts to fall. And so the kind of the curve comes back down on death sentencing. So in the mid-1990s, you have upwards of 350 death sentences a year, and then in 1999, that just starts to decline um, and w- without stopping. And so this last year, we had just 39 death sentences in the country. It was 30 last year. It went up a little bit this year. Um, but in the scheme of things, death sentencing is really, really low. It's the lowest it's been in three decades. Executions started to drop right around the same time, right around 1999, 2000. And uh, you know, now we're seeing you know, typically less than 20 executions a year. Um, but executions are affected by different things. And so you know, a moratorium on execution methods, lethal injection problems, those affect executions in different states. Whereas you know, most states still have the death penalty on the book. They can do death sentencing. You know, 31 states have it. Uh, with the kind of puzzle that made me want to write this book was that we have all these states that have the death penalty. It's on the books the same way it was in the 1990s. Uh, I can understand why executions have come down, given all the problems with drugs and botched executions. But I, I didn't understand why death sentencing would come down, since the law hasn't changed, really. Let's start with what, because you sort of, you break it down very nicely in the book. There's a lot of things that could be contributing to this. Let's start with what you considered and found to not actually be uh, contributing to the decline. One question I had when I was researching this was, um, well, could it be that some states have abolished the death penalty since then? And it was easy to reject that as a possible explanation because most of the states to this day that have legally abolished the death penalty were states that never death sentenced very many people to begin with. So states like Massachusetts here or Illinois or Maryland or uh, Connecticut. And so that, 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 that wasn't a big driver of the decline. And in fact, many of those states abolished the death penalty um, several years after the decline had already set in. Um, another question is whether certain legal changes might have had an impact because the Supreme Court has you know, issued lots of decisions that relate to the death penalty, some more important than others, and couldn't study all of them. But one, one change that people thought might affect things was uh, the uh, decision that uh, it has to be a jury that does the death sentencing and not a judge. And there were a number of top death penalty states where judges could override the jury or just judges were the ones making the sentencing decision. And these are you know, elected judges who would run for office saying, I impose the death penalty a lot, I'm tough on crime, vote for me. Uh, and what we found was that there was no consistent relationship. We looked at different statistical models. And I say we because I worked with co-authors who have statistical training, I don't. <laughs> um, and uh, so the, you know, very, very, you know, no consistent relationship between 
when states switched to having a judge be the censor and uh, the decline in death sentences. Uh, another explanation I thought was a really logical one to study. I've done lots of work on wrongful convictions and uh, studied the cases of DNA exonerees in particular. That's what my first book was about, Convicting the Innocent. I thought, well, you know, a, a DNA exoneration where it's someone who's walked off of death row for not having even done the crime. Uh, it's not that they weren't eligible for the death penalty, but they didn't do the crime. That's a big event. It gets lots of news coverage. Mm -hmm. People have noticed that it's become, you know, it's, that these cases are high profile, that there's the media attention to these cases has grown over the years. And so I wondered, well, if states have experienced more death row exonerations, uh, is that maybe over, maybe it takes a few years for that to set in, but maybe there's some relationship between the number of exonerations and the decline in death sentences in a state. And instead, we found no such relationship. Instead, what we saw was that the more uh, death sentences a state has, the more exonerations it has. It's just like it's a fixed byproduct, that if you sentence a lot of people to death and you're producing a lot of death sentences, you're going to produce more errors and mistakes, too. Which suggests that errors are inevitable. That's the concern, and uh, it does make some sense. There is a, a you know, significant group of murder cases uh, that are just really hard to solve, mm -hmm. where if by definition you know, the, the person who saw what happened was the one who was murdered, and if there are no like, great DNA evidence or forensics, uh, there, murder cases can be really hard to, to solve, and you may be uh, depending on, say, like a confession from a suspect. Um, but you know those kind of high-stakes interrogations it can lead to false confessions too. A lot of the exonerations in death penalty cases have involved false confessions. What about the um, just overall decrease in crime or the decrease in sort of the in people committing capital offenses, does that have anything to do with it? Yeah, so that was, I mean, that, that was uh, something else that, that we knew was important to study. So homicides came down in the 90s, and no one knows exactly why they went up or why they went down. And criminologists have debated it for years, and there isn't a consensus. It seems like these things operate according to these larger social trends, which operate across countries even, but, you know, it was not good for the Supreme Court when homicides skyrocketed after they abolished the death penalty in the early 1970s. The public was clamoring for punishment. And homicides and crime generally continued to rise in the 1980s through the middle of the 1990s. And no one knows why, but in the middle of the 1990s, crime starts to go down again. And so do homicides. And there are a number of possible explanations. But what that meant was there were fewer murders that could turn into death sentences. And at the state level, we found this connection between the decline in homicides, since different states experienced the murder decline at di in slightly different rates. Um, there was a connection. And it somewhat makes sense then. Okay, 1999, death sentencing really starts to decline on average across the country. Well, that's a few years into the homicide decline. And no one is sentenced to death the day after the murder is committed. It may take a year or two for the case to go to a judgment. Um, we then looked more carefully at the county level and also found this association between counties that had higher mur murder rates and had more death sentences. But there, there was a catch. And part of the reason why there's a big catch when you look at homicides and death sentencing is that you know, at its height in the 1990s, maybe 350 death sentences in a year, but there were over 14,000 homicides. Mm. So it's a tiny number of murders that ever resulted in a death sentence. And so how did they pick? Uh, well. What we found was that basically a, we found a white lives matter effect. 
that there was a very close connection between murders where there was a white victim and death sentencing. Counties with more white victimization and murders had more death sentences. But there was no connection across all the different statistical models we tried to find one between black victimization and murder and death sentencing. And that's even grown over time as death sentences have shrunk. More and more death sentencing has happened in the counties that have more white victim murders. And so only some murders seem to be driving death sentencing in a strong way. And it was a big impact of white victimization of murder. We also found that the counties with, most deaths, with the most death sentencing were counties that were the most racially fragmented, that had larger black populations. But most murder in general is within race. You know, most murders have white perpetrators and white victims, you know, black or Latino perpetrators and black or Latino victims within race murders. And nevertheless, it's the, the cases where there's a white victim that disproportionately result in death sentences. And then when you look at the execution data, it becomes even more disproportionate and also cross-racially disproportionate, where you have enormous numbers of people executed who are black or Latino where the victims are white. So that's, that racial bias is extremely troubling. And we see it you know, nationally across all of these death penalty states and all the counties that are doing death sentencing. That actually brings me to a point I wanted to talk about um, around just sort of the basic demographics of the death penalty. So um, you seem to just have descri- described that people are sort of disproportionately more likely to um, sentence folks to death when the victim is white, but on an absolute basis, um, who is getting sentenced to death? What, I mean, what, is, what does a typical death row look like? So the, in terms of, I mean, it's, it's um, mostly male. Mm-hmm. Um, and the racial demographics, I'm trying to remember now, it's, I, I think, maybe, you know, um, 30, 40% minority. So, you know, in excess of the population. Um, but... Um, not exactly in proportion to homicide rates in general. Okay. And where are folks, um, where are people being sentenced to death? So um, only in certain states and only in certain counties. The, uh, another big change that happened over the last 20 years is that it used to be that in rural counties you regularly had death sentences, and I think people associate the death penalty with you know, conservative rural America. It's a heartland uh, punishment, which is popular across broad stretches of the country. Uh, it's not like a luxury good of urban suburbs. And and that's how it was. You know, when you look at the county maps, I have a website, endofitsrope.com, where you can look at your state and see the county maps of where death sentencing was. And you see that you have, it uses the color blue, you have blue all across wide swaths of states like Texas, Virginia, Oklahoma, California, Florida. And all those rural counties start to disappear. Hmm. And uh, there are very few rural counties that ever sends anyone to death anymore. And on average, not only fewer counties are sentencing people to death, but it's the high-income counties, it's the most densely populated counties. It's becoming something that's really limited to big suburban urban counties wealthy ones. And that's not people's image of the death penalty at all, but that's, yeah. that's where it lives today. That's, especially in the last 10 years, that's, that's where the death penalty is. It's kind of retreated to these 
big wealthy counties. Back to the question of um, things that have led to this decline. Yeah. So what some about big ones we haven't talked about? Yeah, exactly. So, um, what about life without parole? So that that's a really interesting topic because states adopted life without parole at different times. Some states went through the, you know, the truth and sentencing movement and got rid of parole in general. Some states actually adopted life without parole in part because some people wanted to reduce the death penalty and thought we should give jurors the option um, that if you have jurors in a serious murder case, they should have the choice whether to send someone to death. And they're going to be worried that this murderer is going to walk the streets again. Uh, some prosecutors aggressively opposed life without parole, saying, no, 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 they'll make it harder to get death sentences because if the jury knows that this person is never going to walk the streets again, they might not do the death penalty. And so I, I wanted to study whether introducing life without parole as an option for the jury had any relationship to, to death sentencing. Um, we found a relationship, but a, a very weak one. And that, that was surprising because when you poll on the death penalty, uh, People often say that, it will, if life without parole is an option, then you know, I don't care about the death penalty as much. That said, uh, when they've done some polling about uh, people who support the death penalty, uh, what do you think life without parole means? People often still say they don't, they don't really believe that it's without parole, that they think they'll get out in 10 or 20 years. And in fact, prosecutors are, have been allowed to say in many states, well, it's life without parole, but you could always get clemency from the governor. So there's no, there's no real, <laughs> there's no real security unless you execute someone. That's interesting because you could also clearly get clemency if someone were sentenced to death as well. It just would yeah. have to happen, I guess. In the, how long? Do, how long? Out of curiosity, how long is an average death penalty? How long is the time between being sentenced and execution on average? Oh, it's, it's something like 15 years. Yeah, okay, that's what yeah. I thought. So it's There's just, a lot of time for clemency to, yeah, to be considered. To make its way in. And, yeah. and, and there are you know, a fair number of people who do get clemency, yeah. even today when governors grant pardons and clemency a lot less often. Um, so, okay, then having laid out all the things that don't contribute or contribute minimally, what is it that you think is driving this decline? Yeah, so I, I do think that white victimization for murder really is a driver of the decline. Um, but uh, another driver of the decline that's based on what I was already talking about is, I think, the cost of seeking the death penalty. Be, you know, I think that's part of the explanation of why the rural counties aren't doing it anymore. But why would the death penalty be more expensive? I think what we're seeing is that defense lawyers have changed the game and have developed better ways to explain to a jury why you might not want to send someone to death. And uh, I could see this, this change really vividly when I was reading lots and lots of capital trial transcripts from Virginia, where, where I live now. Uh, you would read these trials in the 1990s, and a death penalty case might be like two days long, maybe a day and a half, and the defense wouldn't really say much about whether the person should be sentenced to death or not. After the person was found guilty of capital murder, they basically gave up and told the jury, do what you have to do. Um, that's changed now, and instead, the, the sentencing part of the trial, where you're talking about whether a death sentence is justified or not, is much longer than the guilt phase. It's kind of the main event of the trial. And that's the stage where you say, well, you've convicted my client of capital murder, but is this the kind of person that deserves the ultimate punishment? Let me tell you about uh, the childhood abuse that this person suffered. This person's childhood was unrelentingly brutal. 
or these are the addiction issues the person has. The client is, is disabled or extremely mentally ill. This is not the kind of person who should be blamed for doing something cold-hearted and rational because this is not a person who is rational. This is someone who is disabled, ill, abused. Let me tell you the life story that brought us to where we are today. And that's many people who are tried for capital crimes have. Yeah, so the people who commit the worst murders, it's kind of a confound, are often aren't acting the way we would expect caring people to act because Mm -hmm. they're really damaged goods for lots of different reasons. In the 1990s, you never heard that in in, in places like Virginia where the defense really didn't do much investigation and they didn't present anything. But when you hear that full story, you have jurors extending mercy at death sentencing Mm -hmm. in murder cases, which which is shocking. You have prosecutors losing when they seek the death penalty. Um, And that, that... biggest change that I observed in Virginia when I was studying these trials was the change that happened when Virginia created regional public defenders to handle death penalty cases in 2004. And once they started taking cases, you saw the sentencing part of the trial double in length. Most of the experts all of a sudden were being called by the defense, mental health experts, for example. These offices were created, I mean, we don't associate public defenders necessarily with with dream team lawyering. And these offices do not have enormous budgets. And in fact, they were created to save money in Virginia because the worry was that private lawyers would, would submit all kinds of billing without without oversight. So, you know, we need an office which has rules and has a fixed budget, and that'll make these cases more, more uniform and, and cheaper. Um, but what we saw is that after they created those offices in Virginia, prosecutors lost half the time when they sought the death penalty. And since 2011, there hasn't been a single death sentence in Virginia. And Virginia in the modern era is second only to Texas in executions. It's a top death sentencing state. The law hadn't changed, but but the death penalty has, on the ground, largely disappeared in Virginia. So I wondered, well, when states create these offices, is that associated with the death penalty decline? You know, some states like Virginia, North Carolina, uh, New York when it had the death penalty, Colorado, have public defender offices that handle death trials across the state. Other states, like Florida, like California, it's just up to the trial judge to assign someone court-appointed lawyer maybe, case by case. And what I saw was a very, very substantial effect uh, that states that had these statewide offices were much more likely to see a sharp decline uh, in the years when they had those offices. There's an incredibly strong association, and you see it. States like Virginia and North Carolina have had death sentencing all but disappear. States like Florida and California, where you have court-appointed lawyers, uh, are still sentencing people to death every year. What are sort of best practices for these um, you know, death penalty lawyering teams? Yeah, so I think one of the key things is that it is a team, like you say. You might figure, look, whether it's the court appointing a lawyer or whether it's a lawyer working in a public defender's office. It's a lawyer, and you know, lawyers do trials. And that was kind of the model in Virginia in the 90s. A lawyer would walk in the courtroom and question witnesses and do stuff on their feet. And, you know, some of these lawyers are people I know, and they would say, yeah, that's I was good. You know, I go in, and, you know, every day is a surprise in the courtroom. You never know what's going to happen. You question the witnesses, and you bring stuff out. You do the best you can. Well, that may be, it may be that these lawyers were brilliant on their feet, but, you know, really good lawyering requires preparation before a trial. Uh, and it's actually non-lawyers who are much cheaper than lawyers uh, who do that work especially well. And it's, it's become standard now that what you should have in a death penalty case is not just a lawyer, or really two lawyers, but a social worker. And social workers who focus on investigating the social history 
of the defendant, the mental health records, the foster records, the school records. You know, lawyers don't know how to talk to people about childhood abuse or to talk some to... Some of them don't know how to talk to people, period. <laughs> yeah. well, and we certainly, like, maybe in a clinic we get some interviewing experience, but we don't know how to read medical records. We're not, we don't, we're not medically trained. And, uh, and the social workers have really changed the game in these cases and I think deserve a lot of credit in a, in a criminal case where you often don't get a lot of information from prosecutors before trial, in some states there's not much discovery, what you do have is your own client. And you can start investigating your client the minute you get the case. And, and that's what these offices can do because you know, you're not trying to put together a team from scratch. They have a social worker who the minute a case gets charged capitally, they meet with the client, they start scouring for the school records, the foster care records. They can start working on the case right away and explain to the prosecutors, you know, do you really want to take this case to trial? Uh, this, this client is severely mentally ill. The jury's going to hear all about that. It's not, it's not going to be very clear cut to them that this person should be uh, the one that gets the ultimate punishment. And more and more you see prosecutors settle cases without going to trial on death penalty cases. You know, in Virginia, maybe once a year a death penalty case goes to trial, and, uh, and we don't see death sentences when they do. So we've talked a lot about the fact that the death penalty is on the decline, and your argument is that it's, you know, it's headed to extinction? I, or am I overstating that? That's the way it's going now. Uh, death sentences have continued to decline over the last 10 years uh, as crime rates have continued to drop and as we have these defense offices doing better work in many death penalty states, but not all. I would predict that the death penalty will continue in a more stable way in states like Florida and California, where there's no state capital defender. Um, if we saw homicide rates swing up again, things might be different. If we see racism stoked, uh, we've seen racism expressed in politics like never before. You know, when death sensing has to do primarily with murders with white victims, and when death sensing mostly occurs today in counties that are especially racially fragmented, then, you know, if um, the people trying to bring the death penalty back are stoking fears of immigrants and of race and fear of crime. They're, they're, that's the right playbook if you want to bring the death penalty back. Um, so far, it's not working in part because crime seems to be continuing to drop, and so have murders. They went up a little bit in 2016. They're continuing to decline. Um, but if that all of a sudden changed, if these trends suddenly reversed, then we might see what we saw in the 1970s where the death penalty comes roaring back along with tough on crime. That doesn't seem to be happening. The, the crime decline seems entrenched, and it continues to deepen across the country like it has been for, for 20 years now. But, um, but that, that, that could change. It may, it may take decades for it to change, but it may. Uh, it would take even longer, perhaps, for the death penalty to come back in these you know, many states and counties where prosecutors just don't do it anymore because it takes time to... to develop the capability to do these trials. I also think it's different now that defense lawyers know how to defend one of these cases. And, uh, you know, there are other things that are, that I, I couldn't study using statistics, but people are, are understand popularly, uh, understand mental health problems more. People are talking about it more publicly. I think the conversation around mental illness has changed in this country. And so, 
uh, it may have been that even if lawyers had done a better job of presenting, you know, psychiatric evidence in the 1980s, that it wasn't just that people were tough on crime back then and there was more crime, but people may not have understood it. There are misconceptions. So they're trying to win on the insanity defense, and that's all made up. Um, I think people understand much more about intellectual disability and the wide range of mental health problems today. So that may be another reason why, why jurors can listen more carefully when they do hear that evidence. So, you know, I do wonder that even if there, there was hysteria around a new crime wave, whether it really would be possible to have the same kind of surge in death sentencing that we saw in the 1980s and 90s. Yeah. I'm, I'm optimistic. Yeah. And what, what do you think would get us over those last five yards or whatever? I mean, I, I could see a world in which it declines and just sort of stays on the books. Right. Which we, what we haven't talked about, which I want to talk about is, is, is life without parole and the role that the death penalty plays in negotiating people into pleading to LWAP. Yes. Um, but, you know, what, what do you think would get us from, um, go, you know, from the death penalty is on the books but no one really seeks it anymore to the death penalty is no longer constitutional or statutorily allowed, it's illegal in the United States? Yeah, so we, we could see states just kind of uh, continue along the path of a state like my current home state of Virginia, where there's, there hasn't been a death sentence since 2011. Uh, there are only three people left on death row. The death penalty has all but disappeared, but prosecutors charge cases capitally every year, mm. less than they did 10 years ago, but not that many less. And most of those cases plead out, often, often to life without parole. Uh, I could see over time the state saying, you know, why are we spending millions and millions of dollars on the death penalty that we don't even use? And prosecutors might even say, well, we get a lot of leverage out of seeking the death penalty. It's easier to get a life without parole plea if we're threatening the death penalty. Yeah. On the other hand, when we charge a case capitally, we have these regional capital defenders come in, and they do really good mental health workups. They're, they're really top lawyers. You know, if we get rid of the death penalty, then we'll go back to regular court-appointed lawyers and regular public defenders and we won't have to take these cases to trial. We won't have them discover all these mental illnesses that we never paid attention to. They actually might get something significant uh, out, of, uh, out of death penalty abolition. Uh, th that said, you know, I think some people in the abolition community think of abolition as um, sort of the solution to our failed experiment with the death penalty. I'm not sure abolition is any more permanent than the kind of slow decline that we're seeing now. I mean, there have been states that have abolished the death penalty and brought it back. Mm. And you can have you know, the U.S. Supreme Court abolish the death penalty and brought it back. <laughs> that's that's simplifying, a thing, uh, simplifying it a little bit. But you, know, you have countries, like Turkey is talking about bringing back the death penalty. Um, and so you know, I, I think it's... Uh, it's really important to learn the lessons we've learned from the death penalty because states will, will may abolish, they may bring it back, they may do it through the courts, they may do it through the statutes and the voters. Um, but if you forget those lessons, we might repeat the same mistakes again. I want to end on a pessimistic note. So I want to talk about... Let's talk about life without parole. Yeah, exactly. You knew exactly <laughs> where I was going. Let's talk about life without parole um, and what's happened with what life without parole, what the sort of the dramatic increase, and is that the, is that the next death penalty if, uh, if you were able to sort of winnow death penalties down to an inconsequential, quote-unquote, yeah. uh, rate? 
Yeah, so we have, you know, the death sentencing has reached record lows in this country, and life without parole has reached record highs. And, you know, we have 10 times more people serving life without parole than were ever on death row. And crime has continued to drive. It's not like there's some, like, uh, epidemic of murders justifying a tenfold increase in life without parole in this country. You know, we have 50,000 people serving life without parole. I I have a, a, a graphic in the book where I show how death sentencing has declined dramatically in Texas. We now from you know, upwards of 40 death sentences a year in the 90s. We now have like three or four death sentences a year in Texas. Um, but there are now 800 people serving life without parole. LWAP, life without parole, has exploded in Texas. Um, that said, I don't want to give the impression that it's this, this uh, deal with the devil type of trade-off because there are many states where life without parole has exploded that aren't death penalty states even. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the patterns are different. In some states, including perhaps Texas, it's like death sentencing counties, like, like uh, Harris County, where Houston is, that seem to have traded the death penalty for life without parole. Um, but in other states, it seems to be a different pattern entirely, where they didn't use the death penalty, or it's even different counties that are really have become aggressive about seeking life without parole, and there's less cost. You don't have the same lawyers assigned. It's easier to get these life without parole sentences. It is similar in the sense that it does seem to be driven by these counties, by certain prosecutors in certain places that are seeking life without parole, I'm working on a project which is going to take some time, um, a lot longer than this death penalty book did, to code data about everyone serving LWAP in this country to track wow. those patterns and figure out whether there is a relationship between murder rates and LWAP sentences. What are the states that are disproportionately seeking LWAP? What are the counties that are disproportionately doing it? Um, Ashley Nellis at the Sentencing Project, she's done, I think, the most remarkable work in the country tracking the rise of LWAP and also the virtual uh, life sentences of people who don't have life without parole sentences, but they will never get out in their life. So we're, we're trying to work together state by state to, to assemble this data. I think it'll take some time. I think lots of law students will, will be helping us. <laughs> uh, but we're, 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 we're getting started. Um, but, you know, we have either 50,000 formally or 200,000, including virtual life sentences, people who will never get out of prison. It's an increasing share of the entire prison population. Prisons are sort of being swallowed by lifers since states are diverting more of the low-level offenders. And so the prisons, you know, it's, it's harder to do something about mass incarceration when you have a big, big population of people who are not eligible for release. Right. Yeah, it does seem like it, that's going to be the next, the next step in, in attacking mass incarceration has to be taking on these long sentences because the math of it is just, you know, uh, you, you say in the book a bunch of times, someone who's serving a 10-year sentence takes up the same... A, you know, amount of space in prison and resources is 10 people serving 10 one-year sentences, so. You know, and we've seen, you know, lifers get released in California by Governor Jerry Brown. They have a way, way, way lower recidivism rate mm-hmm. than typical people on parole. You know, there have been some technical parole violations, but um, but then again, all it'll take is like, a, you know, a 65-year-old murderer who gets released and commits another murder for a legislature to say, oh, we're done, no more no, right. more, no more parole for lifers. Yeah, it's risky. But, yeah, uh, one of the things I... It's a great quotation in the book. I'm not going to get right. But um, but the idea that the, the greatest thing you can do for, you know, to reduce recidivism is just to sort of age someone out of crimes. But it's people over 35 basically just don't really commit crimes at significant rates. Is that right? Well, and specifically, I mean, most crimes uh, are disproportionately committed by men, mm-hmm. except petty larceny. At least the Virginia data is that women are much more likely to commit uh, shoplifting offenses. 
but in, in general, you have men who are uh, more likely to be highly criminal. Um, and you know, there's studies on brain development, which continues through the 20s. Um, but then you know, after the age of 35, 40, really unlikely to commit crimes again in general. Right? There, there are some types of crimes and criminals where people really do have entrenched patterns of criminality throughout their life. But for the most part, no. People are really low risk um, once they age out. Thank you so much. This yeah, has been great. You. That's it for this episode of Voir Dear. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope your hypothesis was right, or at least that you learned something new. Thank you to the folks at Poddington Bear for composing our theme music. Thanks to Anna Wyke and Brooke Hopkins for their continuing support of this project. And I want to encourage you to reach out at voirdearpodcast at gmail.com. And please remember to rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you got this podcast. It's helping us uh, to grow quite a lot. Thanks. Thanks.